Well, we're in an appropriate place um, on this Sunday between Father's Day weekend, Independence Day, Fourth of July weekend, because we have this kind of providential Bible bridge between those two those two weekends. We have two dominant <clears throat> themes in this text, and it's fatherhood and it's freedom. You have um, the father is used over a dozen times in this passage. This theme of freedom and slave and free, it, it runs throughout this passage. And, and so just thinking about that, and here we're coming up with the Independence Day coming up. And I, I, think if, I don't think there's anything Americans value more, would say they value more than freedom. And apparently Brits do too, as we've seen this week. Um, but it's possible that we can enjoy all of this political freedom and yet take it for granted and forget what a privilege that is, but nevertheless, we have strong feelings for our freedom. Um, but that can be twisted. And, and the irony is, is that much of the freedom, quote, that people clamor for is really just another form of bondage. And, and this is one of the things we'll see here is that sin promises freedom that it cannot provide. And only, true freedom can only be found in life in Christ. And so that's going to be absolutely clear in this passage this morning. And so before we really get into the outline that we'll be working from today, there's an issue that we just want to address right there at the beginning in verses 30 to 32. So back up to verse 30 with me, and I'll, we'll, I'll show you what, what we mean. As he, as Jesus was saying these things, I appreciated your comment, Jeff. I think that's right on. This, this, this block of teaching that Jesus has spoken, beginning with that declaration, I am the light of the world. Whoever, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life, that invitation to all. And then there's these astonishing claims that Jesus makes about himself. But as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So as Jesus taught, there was a considerable number of people, many, the text says, people who, who believed in him. And, and so was it dozens, was it hundreds, we, we don't know, but there were a lot of people. So there are now these new believers in this crowd. And there are a lot of opponents of Jesus, but there are, there are believers there. And in verse 31 to 32, Jesus speaks directly to these Jewish believers, but the whole crowd is listening. And so you get into verse 33, and this is where the question comes. It's at verse 33 begins, they answered him. Now, the question is, who is the they? Who is the they? Is it the new Jewish believers? Because the they don't come off looking very good throughout the rest of this chapter. They, uh, Jesus says, they are of their father, the devil. They have murder in their hearts. They think Jesus has a demon. They, at the end of the chapter, they're going to have rocks in their hands ready to kill Jesus. So who, who is the they? How do, what's going on here? How do we explain this sudden change between verse 32 and Verse 33, that's where I think the change happens. There are, there are two main possibilities. There are those, one, one, uh, some people say that, that those who believe, and I've used that air quotes in, on purpose, in Jesus in verse 30 are the same ones who are ready to stone him uh, just a few verses later. And so this isn't two 
different groups of people. This is the same group of people. And, and so the, the transition isn't, again, between different groups of people, but it's between different attitudes within the same group of people. And so, so it's not, I mean, those who hold this view, they don't, they're, it's, they're not saying that these are believers who become unbelievers. They lose their salvation. That's not it. But they were never genuine believers to begin with. They didn't really um, authentically believe in Jesus Christ. They they maybe were casually interested in him. They had they had kind of a baseline agreement with what Jesus was teaching, but they didn't truly believe. And so when Jesus comes back and he offends them with what he says and uh, about in verse thirty two about this freedom and the need to be free, well, their true colors are shown and their faith is shown to be false, and they turn against Jesus. Now there's. In support of this view, I mean, very simply, you read verse 33 and it says, they answered him, and it, it makes most natural sense to say that they is the same group that he's just talking about, right? And so, it, it reads most naturally to ref, that, that it's referring to the same people. And we know, I mean, experientially, and this is a story of many of you, we know that, that there are those, and maybe you were them, and I was, this is part of my story, that you had, you grew up in the church, you had some knowledge of Jesus, and you didn't disagree with what you were taught, but you hadn't really trusted in Christ. So I don't doubt that that's true, but the question is, is, that's what, is that what we have here? So that's one possibility. Is that these aren't true believers, but they, there's just this kind of um, agreement with what Jesus taught. Second, there are, there are two groups of people in this passage. There are genuine Jewish believers, and then there are these Jewish objectors. So when John says that many believed in Jesus, what he means is many believed in Jesus. <laughs> and so, and this, the whole book of John is written, so what? So that people will believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, believe is the key word throughout the Gospel of John. And so John writes so that we'll see Christ and we'll believe in Him and have life in His name. That's the whole purpose of John. So this this view is supported by that purpose, and it's supported by the natural reading of believe. I mean, that's just, that's how, that's how John, John, if his whole purpose is writing so that people believe, I think he's pretty clear on believe. But the question remains is, where is the transition then between the believers and the objectors? And, and some say it's between verse 30 and 31, so they note a difference in John's wording. And you may not, in the ESV, I notice it doesn't pick up on this, it doesn't include this, but in the Greek it says, the many believed in him, verse 30, but then in verse 31, the Jews who had believed him. There's no preposition there, so some want to make a distinction between believers in Jesus Christ and then those who just kind of casual agreeers with Christ who just believe him. And I, I think that is, I don't think that holds any water. Uh, the other possibility is that there's this transition between verses 32 and 33. And so Jesus is speaking to genuine Jewish believers in the crowd that's also full of Jewish opponents. And so his enemies then object to his answer, object and answer Jesus in verse 33. They kind of hijack the conversation that Jesus is having with these true believers. Let me just say, this isn't an interpretive hill. This passage is not the hill I'm prepared to die on. But I do take that second view, and I think that the transition there happens between verse 32 and 33. It just seems to fit best with the context and with, again, John's purpose in writing this gospel account. 
And so the, this abruptness, and I acknowledge the abruptness of the transition, but it seems to make more sense if it's two groups of people than the same people. And if, if so, why would John even spend three verses saying that they believed in him when clearly he knew that they really didn't believe in him? It would be pointless to even say that. Um, so this is what I think is going on. Jesus teaching this large crowd of people, and a number of folks truly believe in Jesus as he teaches. They they, they, and, and Jesus knows they believe. He knows what's in man. He knows what's in the hearts of people. And so he speaks to those in the crowd who have truly believed in him. That's who he's addressing his words to. But what Jesus says to, to these Jewish believers offends the rest of the Jews in the crowd. And realize, they don't know that anybody has just believed in Jesus. It's not like they've changed colors or something like that or have some physical physical transformation. There's no invitation, no raising heads or walking an aisle or anything like that. They, they just believed in Christ. And, and so the Pharisees standing next to this born-again, new, newly born-again Jew, he can't tell the difference. For all he knows, Jesus is speaking to everybody in the crowd and, and telling them that they, they, they can be free if, 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 when they have the truth. And so this doesn't sit well with them. And so what follows is this extended back and forth dialogue between these Jewish opponents, opponents and Jesus himself. I think that's what's happening here. So Jesus says, again, to believers, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he's interrupted. And he never has an opportunity or he doesn't, he doesn't ever get to explain what it means then to abide in his word. What that, what that looks like in the life of a, of a believer. He's going to come back to that and it's going to be in chapter, boy is he going to come back to it in chapters 14 to 16. And so he's going to unpack really what that means. But, but, but here he goes, it goes on. The conversation goes elsewhere. And so in what remains are these two threads that hold the rest of this passage together. And it's this, is one, is we'll see how powerful and pervasive Sin and unbelief is. I mean, it will we'll see it in all of its ugliness in this passage. And then secondly, we see how great and awesome Jesus is. And how He's un, uh, un, unbelievable, His unbelievable grace, His unstoppable truth. And we see Him again in all of His glory here in this scene. So sin is strong. It really is. But this is, the, this is what we'll see is that Christ is stronger. The sun is stronger. So we'll see these contrasts between sin and the sun. And that's how we'll frame our time in this text this morning. So the first contrast in between verses 33 and 38 is this. Is that sin enslaves, the sun liberates. Sin enslaves, the sun liberates. So after Jesus tells these Jewish believers in this mixed crowd that they'll be set free by knowing the truth, Jesus' enemies just lose it. They become unhinged. And so verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Because Jesus, so this is, this is how they reason. Jesus says that this freedom is, it will, will be this future state, future tense. The truth will set you free. So they're thinking, if we're not free, that must mean we're slaves. But we're children of Abraham. We've, we've, we, we can't be slaves, so Jesus is dead wrong. This is how they're 
thinking. And so they seem to, they seem to want to root their argument in history. And, and so they're arguing that the Jews have never been slaves, which is very interesting. Because at the time that they're saying this, while they're not technically slaves, they're also definitely not technically free. They're under Roman oppression, occupation. And, and you look through their history and they, and they've, they were enslaved in Egypt and they were taken captive by Syria and Babylon and Persia. And so they, to say they've never been slaves, but Jesus, what does he do? Does he, does he argue with them about their defective understanding of Jewish history? The way they just kind of look through rose-colored glasses back at their past. No. He points to a deeper bondage. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you. No, don't, don't just pass over that phrase. That Jesus wants you to stop and really pay attention. This is truth. You can take it to the bank. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And what Jesus is showing us is that sin is far worse than we ever imagined. Than they ever imagined, than we ever imagined. The problem with sin is not simply that generally good people occasionally do some generally bad things. The problem is not that, that sin just kind of muddies up life if we, you know, by a, a sin here and there, we do little sins. That's not the problem. The problem with sin is that it enslaves us. We, it, it is our master that we must obey. It's far more serious than we realize. It just dominates our lives. And this is what Jesus is trying to show them with this language. And just like the Jews, we, we, it, those with, without Christ are, are just as enslaved today. And, and, and those who are enslaved, they generally think they're free. That's what we see now. It's what we certainly how they thought then. People don't fall into temptation because they're looking for shackles. They want bondage. They, 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 they sin because they, they're looking for a good time. They sin because it's easier. It's, it's, it seems pleasurable. People are passionate about their pursuit of this false kind of freedom and they, they will have nothing to do, unwilling to turn to Christ and be truly free, abiding in His Word. And so Jesus is exposing the true horror of sin here. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It does not, sin never sets you free. It never liberates you. It always takes you captive. It always owns you. It always controls you. I just we forget that even as believers. We think that yes, every other time that I've ever sinned, it 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 did not bring freedom in my life, but the next time, the next time I go to that website, the next time I I pursue that pleasure, the next time I go to that substance instead of trusting in the Lord, that time it's going to bring freedom. It never works. It always enslaves. This is what Jesus is exposing here. Sin and slaves. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son then sets you free, you will be free indeed. The only one who can save you from this bondage is someone from within the family, the son. He's the only one set you free to be in God's house. 
So verse 37, I know that you are offspring of of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you, do not, and you do what you have heard from your father. So this is what Jesus is showing here first. The sin enslaves, the son sets people free. When we talk about enslavement to sin, though, don't just picture some you know, addict that's sitting in jail because he held up a convenience store to, so he could buy what he, whatever substance he was looking for. Jesus is talking to religious, moral people here. Well-taught people. Bible people. And, 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 and so, what He's saying though is you're slaves to sin. You're not just, you know, really pretty good people, good, upright, good standing citizens, but you have this little issue with sin. No, you're enslaved to it. So it's, so don't think of it's just some small subset of, of unbelievers or of those without Christ. It's everything. We're enslaved to fear and anger and lust and greed and love of money and, and, and unforgiveness and pride and jealousy and just goes on and on. It's, we're enslaved to this in bondage. Are you enslaved to sin this morning? Is this, is this, is this you? you? I would just say you don't have to be in any longer. You could have walked in here this morning with shackles, the shackles of sin on your life in bondage to, 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 to sin and to sinful pleasures and you can leave here free, forgiven, righteous in, in, in God's sight. doesn't mean all the consequences of your past will be immediately disappear, but you before God will be righteous cleansed of all your sin and all of that former filth, and you will be free. Free like you've never, ever known. This is, this, is a, this is a hope to us. But even as believers, remember, verses 31 to 32, I think, are spoken to believers. The disciples of Jesus who abide in His Word will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. So there's a sense in which a believer cannot know the truth in that way, and therefore not be truly free. There's, there's freedom in Christ that is, is part of the fruit of discipleship, that we can be growing in freedom in Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus doesn't have time to elaborate on it here, so I can't either, but uh, we'll, we'll come there later in John. Second contrast here is, so first, sin, uh, <coughs> excuse me, sin enslaves, the Son liberates. Second, sin blinds, but the Son gives sight. Sin blinds, the Son gives sight. Verses 39 to 43. So Jesus, in verse 38, He pits His Father against their Father. Now, his language is pretty veiled here. So he's, yes, he's referring to the devil, as we'll see in a little bit. But here, it's not that clear. They don't see it. And so, they, that's not how they hear it. So verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. They're so, they're so proud of their pedigree, of their lineage. They put all of their eggs in the basket of their genealogy. That is, the, the, their hope of right standing before God is that they are children of Abraham. Their life verse made up is, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he is a descendant of Abraham. This is how they lived functionally. This is how they're reasoning with Jesus. 
And so, how does Jesus respond? Verse 39, Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. He's not denying they're physical children of Abraham, but they're not spiritual, moral children of Abraham. What were the works? Abraham obeyed God's commands. He trusted in God's promises and His plan. He, he, he welcomed God's messengers. He rejoiced in, in, in the day of Christ. Verse 56, we'll see this. Verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Again, he's slowly unveiling who the, the identity of their true father, but it's not fully on display yet. But they react into verse 41. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. And you say, where does that come from? He never said that. What they're saying is, they're, they're, they're not conceived from some immoral sexual union. If, if they were, maybe, they, maybe Jesus could talk about their parentage and, and could point out something. What I honestly think is, is being insinuated by them is they're looking at Jesus and saying, but you were. Who are your parents? Mary and Joseph? I think they're insinuating that. And they up their game though. It's not just Abraham who's their father. They say, we have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why? Because sin so blinded them to the truth about Jesus Christ. His Jews had the truth standing right in front of them. They saw... Jesus' perfect life. They, they witnessed His miracles. They, they heard Him speak the very words of God. They knew the Scriptures and what the Scriptures promised of a Messiah. And they saw this being fulfilled right in front of their very eyes. And yet they're blind. It just, that's a warning to us. You can, we can grow up in the church. You can go to vacation Bible school. You can know the Bible stories. You can, can be taught the Scriptures. You can memorize all hundreds of verses in Awana. And you can still be blind. That is how powerful sin is. These men had all of the advantages. All of the religious, moral advantages. And yet, they're blind. Sin always blinds people to the truth of Jesus. But this is the good news. Yes, sin blinds, but the Son gives sight. He can open blind eyes. We'll see it next time in John chapter 9 as He heals this blind man. And yes, He gives the physical man sight. But what we'll see is even after He has physical sight, after He's healed by Jesus, He still doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't have spiritual sight. And so you get down in John 9 and verses 35 to 41, there's this Back and forth, Jesus says to this man who had been healed of his blindness, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He doesn't have eyes to see. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus goes on to say that he compares this blind man 
who knows he's blind is in a better position than these religious people who think they see, but they're truly blind. Sin is so powerful to blind our eyes, but Jesus is so powerful to open blind eyes. Have your eyes been opened to see the truth of Jesus Christ? And if they have, how do you, how do you view those who still walk in darkness? With scorn? Are you you kind of proud of the fact that you have sight and they don't? Do you realize what a gift sight is? What kind of compassion that should provoke in your own heart for those in, around you, your neighbors, your, your co-workers, your fellow students, your family members who still walk in darkness. I know they may be angry and they may be hostile even to the, to the gospel and towards you as a gospel messenger, but do you let, do you let those offenses stick or do you, do you let those just point out to, to the, the awful consequences of sin that is blinding them and evoke compassion for them? Are you pointing others to the sight giver? Third contrast is that sin deceives, but the Son declares truth. Sin deceives, the Son declares truth. Verse 44. So Jesus here, He removes the veil from His Father language. He's, he's kind of opened the door a little bit at a time, but here He blows it open and He drops a nuclear bomb on them. Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. There may be physical children of Abraham. They're spiritual and moral children of the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. That, that the grammar there is very precise. It's present tense. It's continuous action. You are presently and consistently choosing to do and carry out the wishes of the devil. This is the pattern of your life. This is what you're always doing. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You can't, you can't find some hidden connection between the devil and truth. It does not exist. They are polar opposites. And he's, he's emphatic in that. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When, that, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the headwater of all this deception. He's, he's, the, he's the source of all lies. He's always deceiving, always lying, always perverting, twisting the truth of God's Word even. And He does this because He's bent on killing, murder, destruction. And, and just let me pause, and maybe this needs to be said, is that Jesus believes in a literal devil. A real devil. That He actually exists. That He holds tremendous he holds tremendous influence on earth. He's not imaginary. And, and you should too. You should believe this. He's not some cartoonish little guy who sits on your shoulder and tries to convince you to make poor choices. He's a real, evil, spiritual, fallen, angelic being. So he, he's real. and just Verse 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I, I, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. These Jews are under sin's satanic deception. They are, they are completely deceived about 
who Christ is and who He's not. And if you're not trusting in Christ, you remain under that same deception. And again, it doesn't, as you said, it doesn't matter how religious you are, how moral you are, how well taught you are. You were not, you are not more religious, moral, or well taught than the Pharisees. And they were completely deceived. They were children of the devil. But against this deception that sin brings, there's Jesus. And he, he is telling the truth. He says this over and over. I, if I tell the truth, I tell the truth. He is the truth. He proclaims the truth. There's this irrepressible force of truth that is Jesus Christ in their midst, proclaiming it, living it before their eyes. And, and, and this is this is important reminder for us, no matter what kind of opposition we face, no matter how resistant those around us seem to be to the truth of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean there's a defect with the truth. You think you're a better evangelist than Jesus You think you can explain the truth in a way that will convince anybody? Jesus couldn't. So it's it's more than that. There's there's a devil. There's there's this deception. But yet we're to continue to proclaim the truth in a world that's under that deception of the devil. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 to 6, and it shows the, the challenge, but it also shows the hope that we have. And the power of God to do just this. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were deceived. We were blinded. And God said, light. And there was light. And we, and our hearts were open to see Jesus Christ. And He still does it today. He still does it today. Fourth contrast. Last one. We see it in verse 48 through the end of the chapter. Sin dishonors the Son, but the Son is glorified by the Father. Sin dishonors the Son, the Son is glorified by the Father. So Jesus' enemies are not ready to concede defeat. But they realize their arguments aren't going to cut it, so they turn to insults. So verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) How's he going to answer that? I mean, I mean, I realize the word Samaritan probably doesn't conjure up bad images in your mind. We hear the story of the Good Samaritan. We think they're great. You know, they're like the best people in the Bible. Um, this is we, we Samaritans like you know they're, they're Canadian. You know, like big deal. They're just from another place or something like that. Um, they're they're good. They're friends. Um, but to say you are a Samaritan to a Jew is about the meanest, nastiest thing you could say. That was kind of the. The end all insult. We have versions, but I'm not going to say mention those uh, today. Because, but it's that kind of carries that kind of force in, in that day. I mean, the Jews and the Samaritans they hated one another. We've talked about this as Samaritan woman earlier. The only worst possible thing that could be said was what they say next. You you have a demon. You have a, a demon. 
do you see do you see what's being said? They're saying that the Son of God has a wicked demonic being inside him, controlling him and what he says. God Almighty, creator of everything, sustainer of everything, the Lord who is holy, 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 Yahweh, saying you have a demon. It's not just two people, two men arguing with one another. This is God, the Son of God, in flesh. And these religious men say He has a demon. This is the height of dishonor. Blasphemy. They're mocking God. The God of their fathers that they so love to boast that they is their father. But this is what sin does. It dishonors Jesus. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. The God they say is their Father seeks the glory of Jesus. And, and, but they, like their real spiritual father, the devil, they seek to kill him. They seek to dishonor him. Seek to destroy him. Verse 51, again, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So, to his enemies, I, this, is a, this is an offer of the gospel. This is like John 3.16 in short form. He's holding out this, this, this possibility of, of, of life, eternal life. His, what is Jesus' word? His, his word that we see throughout John is that life is found in Him for, for all who trust in Him. You receive this gift by faith. This word is, is there. Verse 52 though, the Jews said to Him, Now we know that He has a demon. That you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. If anybody anybody was one who kept God's word, it was Abraham, it was the prophets, and yet, what do you see throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Over and over, that's the refrain. They all died. So he says, they say, verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are, Jesus? You think you're greater than Abraham? Again, they're so blind, so deceived, that that, that they dishonored Jesus by saying that there could possibly be anybody greater than Him. Greater than Abraham? Is the, is the afternoon sun brighter than a candlelight? Yes, He's greater than Abraham. This is Jesus answered. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say to you that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know Him. And I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
He longed for the day when the promise of Messiah would be filled and fulfilled. And yes, immediately with his son Isaac, but anticipating God's, God's deliverance and, and salvation that would come and the, uh, through, for, through the whole world, through his, through his offspring. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? He's been dead for 2,000 years. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that is language that is graphic, specific, and just absolutely glorious. Jesus doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, I am. He's second, he's the second person of the triune God who's always existed from all eternity, who always will exist, so he's infinitely above Abraham. There's, there's no mistake in what Jesus is saying here and what he's claiming here for himself. He's taking that divine, not, divine name, the, the, the great name of the Lord, I am, and he's taking that as his own. And they get it. This was, this was, Jesus is proclaiming the greatest truth imaginable to this world. What are you saying? He's, he's God incarnate. He's the Son of God in human flesh, standing right in front of them. God sent His own Son to set His people free. Those who are deceived by the devil, enslaved to sin. He's, he's come to free them, to, to undo all the damage that Adam has done. This is the greatest news the sin-cursed world could ever hear when Jesus says, I am. This was the news that the Jewish people had been waiting for, had been longing for, had been hoping for. And yet, as John has already told us in the beginning of this Gospel account, Jesus came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. And their rejection couldn't be stronger. To them, Jesus was, this was the, what Jesus says is the epitome of blasphemy. So verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at Him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I mean, their opposition of Jesus here, it hits a new level. And it's not going to stop until Christ is crucified. But they're not just plotting his death now. They've been plotting his death. But now they're ready in that moment to murder Jesus. There was probably some part of the temple that was kind of a construction site, the temple area. And so they go there. And they, there's stones all over the place. And they come back with rocks in their hands ready to hurl them at Jesus' head to kill Him. Due process, forget it. doesn't matter. They'll take whatever punishment comes from the Romans. They want Him dead now. And, 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 and remember, the man they're trying to kill is their God. The Messiah that they sing about that they pray for, that they've been longing for, that they've been hoping for. This is Him. I mean, it's so devilishly ironic, this scene here. But this is, this is what sin-enslaved, sin-deceived, sin-blinded people do. They dishonor Jesus. It doesn't matter if you hide your murderous thoughts about Jesus behind some kind of respectable neutrality toward Him and let's just all get along and you have your, 
your Jesus and we have our religion and we can just get along. You can hide behind that. You can hide behind a religious veneer that, that just goes with that kind of thing. That's been popular in recent decades in this nation, but it's becoming less common today. It's more outright, more vocal. But regardless, whenever, whenever sinners are confronted with the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ in the gospel, they're either going to believe or they're going to become more antagonistic to it. And so we see this in this scene. We see the, the full horror of sin, its pervasiveness, its power. But we see the greatness of God's Son, Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth, offering freedom, offering sight, offering life, eternal life. You don't have to see death even to his enemies. That same offer is for you today. It stands. He's still the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness. You can have the light of life. You can can know the eternal life. You can know what it means to, yes, you'll physically die, but never see spiritual death. You can know that. Have Have you been set free? Or are you... Still blind? Are you still enslaved? Are you still deceived? Thinking you're free, but you're actually in bondage. The only way to the truth, the only way to freedom, the only way to life is through Jesus Christ. John 14:6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's anyone today who has not come to the Father through Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they might have come in in darkness, under deception, enslaved to sin, and they can leave free, seeing, living like they've never lived before. And so, Lord, you are able. I thank you that we have the opportunity now through baptism to to just just to rejoice with those who have crossed from death to life, from darkness to light. And and so may this be a, just a tremendous celebration of the work that you have done in each of our hearts, God, those who have trusted in Christ. And may it be cause for rejoicing as we celebrate with these, these young people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.